Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and I'm in New York City today. In Washington, D.C., in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, and across the ocean in beautiful Rome, sitting surrounded undoubtedly by buffalo mozzarella and tomatoes <laughs> or something like that. Is, I was so by spaghetti, that by Parmesan cheese, and by Italians saying things like prego, prego. Certainly surrounded by Italians. Um, so let me begin in a, in a slightly offbeat way. I'll tell you a story. Last night I went to the movies and I went to see a movie, um, called Darkest Hour. Uh, and it is a movie about Winston Churchill's first couple of weeks in office as prime minister, uh, after the outbreak of World War II at a, at, at really the grimmest moment possibly in the history of, of the British uh, Empire and, and, and Churchill's own struggle with it and the struggle of the leadership uh, and sort of how Churchill achieved the decision to go ahead and fight Hitler and the Nazis. And I have to say, have I, any of you guys seen it? Just the trailer. No, I have not. No, I don't go out okay, much. I, I have to say it was fantastic. I really loved it. Gary Oldman was amazing as Churchill. You might not see that immediately, but you go and he completely is immersed into the role. And Kristen Scott Thomas um, is terrific as Clementine Churchill and a whole cast of, 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 of great British actors populates these other roles. Um, and of course, Lily James is in it because she's in every movie that comes out of the United Kingdom at the moment. Um, right. um, but but it's 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 a really great movie. But here's what struck me: it's it's you know quite apart from the movie and stuff, was that this was a movie in which Nazism, fascism, and autocracy, authoritarian government were seen as existential threats, threats to the fundamental values that England had stood for, that Western civilization had stood for, um, and that they were worth fighting and dying to keep away, defeat, um, and to preserve the underlying values that our societies have been built upon. And, 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 and it really struck me because there was this, you know, this was a war. This was a, the threat was apparent and, and it seemed to be sudden. 
Um, and, and we now live in an era of sort of creeping Nazism, creeping fascism, creeping authoritarianism that's sort of shrouded in this kind of comic um, uh, uh, cavalcade of characters beginning with Trump. Um, and, 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 and I don't think we're taking it quite as seriously as we did then. Now, clearly, there's not a war. There, there are not Germans about to um, take over the country. But slowly by surely, surely the institutions of the country are changing. The laws of the country are changing. Um, the structure and the way the country operates is changing. The values of the country is changing. And this could be the kind of slow motion equivalent or kind of a, a, the onset of a, of a Nazi rot as opposed to a blitzkrieg. And I, I, just, I just wanted to start off our conversation by getting some reflections on the creeping threats and whether or not we take them seriously enough, Ed. Um, so I think, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely intending to see this this movie, especially after the rave review um, that you've just given. Um, but I think that that darkest hour, that seven days in May, I think it's sort of drawn from that Lukacs book, that wonderful book, Seven Days um, uh, in London. Um, th- that, that sort of comes... Uh, you, you know, at the apogee uh, of the of the Nazi fascist threat, um, you know, when the the only country holding out Britain, um, because America, of course, was neutral still at that point, although very actively pro-British neutral, um, and Russia was still the Soviet Union was still in this uh, pact with the Nazis. That 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 moment is not comparable to where we are. We're kind of, if we're going to use that parallel, in in the early nineteen thirties. Um, and and of course, throughout the thirties, Churchill was was one of the one one of the lonely figures, um, along with members of the Communist Party, um, until the Nazi Soviet Pact, um, who said that we have to defeat Nazism. There is no appeasing. There is no trucking with. There is no compromising with this unstoppable menace. And the Communist Party said that, and a lot of people who would not otherwise have been communists in the thirties joined the Communist Party because it because it, it took that stance. And from the British point of view, you had the Labour Party was pacifist and, you know, disarmament uh, and therefore completely misread the nature of the threat. And I think we're probably in that kind of messy stage at the moment where there are, as you rightly say, forces that are illiberal, that oppose our way of life, that oppose the institutions that uphold our way of life, um, uh, uh, but we're all rather confused as about uh, uh, about the nature of this threat, whether this is just a brief and rather comic operatic, um, but not tragic um, aberration, or whether this really is a deep structural challenge to everything we stand for. And I think we are sort of, we're divided in our diagnoses of what Trump represents. Um, and indeed what events like Brexit mean. And, and therefore, there, there isn't anything like a popular front, a united front uh, against this. There is just a lot of confusion. Um, uh, but uh, I have to say also a lot of, a lot of wonderful um, journalism and some brilliant podcasts, by the way. Well, the, you know, there's no question about that. But let me pick up on a point that, you know, Ed made on the last episode, um, Corey, and that is that, you know, it's not just what's happening in the United States. 
Um, Trump is cozying up to a bunch of folks. And if they were just people like Putin in Russia, which is arguably a declining country, or Erdogan in Turkey, which is a regional power, but which couldn't really have greater power, um, it, it would be one thing. But but it's also Xi Jinping who's you know, leading the most ascendant country in the world and is undertaking the most sort of authoritarian tack that country has taken um, in, in several decades. Um, or Narendra Modi, who is, you know, while still operating in a in a democracy, is is operating in a in a in a more controlling way. And if you look across most of the world, the trend is in this direction. And even in parts of Eastern and Central Europe, um, you see some hints of this. And of course, there are right wing parties in Western Europe where you see some of this. And I'm just wondering. You know, are we, you know, is this the frog test? You know, is the temperature being turned up in the water and we're just not going to notice until it's too late? No, I think people are noticing. The question is whether they will do anything about it. I am more hopeful than you, David, that our institutions are passing the test, that Americans are getting educated about computer hygiene and fake news and that we care about um, the decisions that our courts are making to constrain the executive and to and to embolden the Congress to act on the people's behalf, that celebrating the great journalism that is being conducted by American news organizations and others, Ed Luce, <laughs> um, uh, is I actually think our institutions are passing the test and it's a very very hard test that the Trump administration and the politics of our time are administering. So, so the good news is we're passing. The bad news is so far. Uh, and the erosion of norms that you mentioned, I think, is hugely important. Uh, I, I deep in my dark heart fear that ends 50 or 100 years from now will look at the last 10 years and title the book Lengthening Shadows uh, because the patterns that we are experiencing right now ought to have been evident to us earlier, right? It, I, I loved John McCain's essay in this week's Economist about defending the liberal order and the fact that we got complacent after the Cold War and didn't, and we stopped thinking that we still have adversaries, we even still have enemies, and that they are smart enough to fight us, not to our strengths, but to our weaknesses. And we need to be serious and committed about defending our free societies. I am hopeful that, that, that typically our country and other free societies are slow to mobilize, but quite durable in their commitment to defending themselves. I think that's the story of World War II, and that I hope will be the story of our time. Okay, Rosa, this is where you come in and start grabbing at the tiara of optimism. <laughs> no, this is where I come in and I sneer at the tiara of optimism and we reclaim the, the thorny crown of entropy. 
yeah, I mean, I think I would emphasize Corey's phrase so far. Um, and I'm not totally sure we are. We are passing even so far. Um, you know, we're only 10 months into the Trump presidency here. And although there have been significant signs of resilience um, in the courts, uh, in the press, et cetera, in the United States, there have also been significant, equally significant signs of real structural weakness uh, when it comes to uh, our voting system, when it comes to uh, gerrymandering, when it comes to Congress and Congress's apparent inability slash lack of interest in putting the brakes on Trumpian excesses. Uh, and, you know, think about, I mean, just to take, for example, the courts, right? Trump has been nominating people like crazy to the federal courts. These are lifetime appointments. Uh, there is a constitutionally created process for impeaching federal judges, but it is rarely invoked and extraordinarily difficult. Not quite as difficult as impeaching a president, but awfully close. Um, and Trump has been nominating people who astonishingly are getting the American Bar Association's rating of unqualified. Most presidents don't even bother to nominate people who they aren't confident will get a, a much higher rating. And we're not talking here just about it. We're not talking about all about ideology. We're just talking about people who have zero legal experience. And I speak as someone who would also be wholly unqualified to serve as a federal judge. Uh, so I can I can I, I know one when I see one. Right. Um, and and if these folks get through and they are getting through uh, uh, because the Senate is not stopping them. Um, if these folks continue to get through, this is going to shape those very institutions that we depend on, such as the courts, for decades to come. Uh, you can't get rid of these guys once they're in. They're mostly guys, I should say. Not all, uh, but mostly. Um, you know, they're there. They're there for decades. They're blithering idiots. They're blithering idiots for decades, um, blithering right-wing idiots for decades. Uh, and that's going to hurt us down the road. You know, we may not feel it now. But so, so I, you know, the, the, the frog metaphor is, is obviously unfair to frogs. Frogs are much smarter than that. Frogs jump right out of boiling water because it's very unpleasant for them. And they, they immediately hop out when the temperature gets uncomfortable. But we, we are not obviously as smart as frogs uh, ourselves, however. Um, so I worry that we are, while we're, while we're busy patting ourselves on the shoulders quite appropriately for the ways in which our society has mobilized to resist uh, various uh, Trumpian excesses and so forth, uh, we are missing the various ways in which bad things are being further entrenched. And, and here's, here's yet another example. Uh, the attacks launched on the media uh, I think that the types of actions that we have seen uh, uh, owners of media outlets take against media outlets that are speaking out, the, the sale of Time magazine uh, fueled in part by money from the Koch brothers, you know, the, the long-term trends are not that great, actually, that, that we've got good short-term stuff, but some pretty troubling long-term stuff. Well, you know, Ed, one of the long-term things is 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 the transformation of the judiciary um, into this sort of wingnut paradise that Rosa is talking about. Another one of them, however, is has to do with the, the not the sort of ugly marching in the streets, white supremacy of Charlottesville, but the more subtle forms of white supremacy of a president who only nominates white men to federal judgeships, um, whose cabinet is primarily white Not men. Not just judgeships. Well, that's what I was getting at. Who, who, who's primarily nominating white men 
to most of the positions in the government and is on a regular basis baiting or calling out or trying to make political hay from attacking African-Americans or attacking Mexicans or attacking people of Islamic heritage, or most recently in one of the most stunning boneheaded moves in the stunning boneheaded career of this you know, moron who is the president of the United States, you know, thinking that somehow he was going to score a few, you know, happy-go-lucky points with these Navajo code talkers uh, by making an Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas joke, which is not the first time, by the way, in his career that he's, um, you know, been insensitive to the interests, needs, and dignity of... Um, he's just so busy making American great again, as he tweeted. Indigenous. In Right, indigenous Americans, but, but you know, this is the, the, the we are baking racism into the cake again. Yes, um, yes, we are. We're we're lowering standards that will be very hard to raise again. Um, we're um, baking an extraordinary incivility and cynicism and just tawdriness into into public discourse. Um, alongside uh, the, the the lowering of the bar for, for 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 racism, misogyny, and so forth. So yes, there is all that. That that there's, uh, and it's indisputable. Those trends are going in in the in the wrong way. Unfortunately, um, the uh, sort of larger picture here that I, I think we should we shouldn't sort of take our eyes off, uh, or at least a, a, another perspective, is. Is the economic backdrop? Is the sort of insecurity of life for many Americans, whether they voted for Trump or for Hillary, um, whatever their whatever their political background, and the precariousness of uh, of of being um, anybody other than a member of the elite in most of the West nowadays, including America, and the fact that if you know the one piece of legislation, major legislation, Trump has a chance of getting through the tax. Uh, misnamed tax reform, actually, the, 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 the tax cut um, gets through, that is going to make that, that, that existence even more precarious. There'll be, um, over, over the years, to pay for this big corporate tax cut, there will be uh, an erosion of various benefits that the middle class rely on. Um, it won't be visible in the first three, four years of the bill. It'll be in the latter half of the of the ten year window in which it's framed. But uh, you know, the picture here is that not only is Trump not addressing the economic insecurities of Americans that helped, you know, create the climate that got him elected, but he's actually making them actively worse. That this is a plutocratic, plutopopulist textbook um, uh, move um, by President well, it, Trump. And, and I think that brings us to another really, really important point here. And I don't think it's one that's perhaps as well understood or, or easy for some people to accept. And that is this. Donald Trump is an idiot. He is <laughs> David, but, ins- I, but I want to know what you really think. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to get there. He's an <laughs> idiot. He's um, incompetent as a leader. Uh, he is um, a bad human being. Um, and his impulses are beyond his control and dangerous simultaneously. But for all of these things, Donald Trump is not an outlier to much of the Republican Party in the United States. On tax reform, on uh, removing regulations, 
on supposedly the issue of strengthening the military, on um, cutting back on civil rights and protections of civil rights, uh, and a whole host of other issues. His views and the views of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and the majority of the Republicans in the Senate and the majority of the Republicans um, in the House of Representatives and many governors are completely aligned. In other words, he may be an outlier in terms of American history and he may be an outlier in terms of values and in terms of what we might think of as a president. But the drift of the Republican Party has taken them into a territory where he's not that much of an outlier for them. Corey? Well, I'm sure glad this is a podcast about foreign policy and not just about <laughs> uh, American domestic politics. I do think that we are in a fight for the soul of the Republican Party. And to this point, principled conservatives who believe uh, in the policies that have made us safe and prosperous for the last 70 years are losing that fight. Uh, and yet, I believe we will eventually win it. But we have a lot of work to do, not just to change people's attitudes, but to change people's hearts about this kind of stuff. I do think, uh, just to make you feel a little bit better, Corey, um, that the Democratic Party is not in better shape. Um, I'm, I'm The issues that Ed raised um, about the sort of yawning uh, gap of inequality, the growing inequality between the richest and the poorest, the, the, the sort of hollowing out of the middle class, the the erosion of economic opportunity, threats to the future of work itself that we don't know what to do about. Um, and you know, these are on the one hand, these are these are all uh, trends that are driven in part by global technological and economic changes. On the other hand, we have exacerbated them through uh, active subsidies for corporations uh, and, a, and a complete failure to to take seriously what is happening uh, and to think about the role of government in ameliorating it, whether, whether that goes to uh, investing in education and job retraining uh, or whether that goes to income support for people in areas that have uh, essentially lost their economic core, et cetera. You know, the, the, the Democratic Party the Democratic Party is as guilty as the Republican Party right now, I think, of a, a total failure to either think creatively about how to address these issues uh, and a total failure to think about how to talk to Americans in a way that is not divisive and doesn't doesn't increase divisions and that that breaks my heart I you know I do think the Republican Party is 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 a complete mess is is collapsing entirely um, but I'm not sure the Democratic Party is doing any better so Ed, let me shift the focus a little bit here because Part of what we're talking about here is a is a is a collapse or a or a or dangerous drift among the two major political parties in the United States. But when I look at Europe, when I look at the UK, or when I look at at France, or when I look at Germany, I see something similar. I see political parties that that seem to be past their sell-by date, offering ideologies from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, and 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 alienating or not winning young supporters and creating fringe groups um, 
that are reason that, that that are responses to their their sort of ineffect ineffectiveness. And I'm just wondering if you if you see sort of broader trends, you know, in Europe, for example, that are akin to those in the U.S. Yes, I do. I mean, uh, you know, each country's playing it out slightly differently. I, I, but I, they 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 have these trends in common. I was in um, the Netherlands in Amsterdam last week for a conference, and uh, you know, they've just completed the formation of a four-party coalition government. And it took them seven months to negotiate all the sometimes comically sort of petty details of the terms and who gets which ministry. And they each, everybody's got to get to shadow each other because the parties don't trust each other. And each get little to- token gimmicky um, sort of political points um, included in the coalition's program. And this is a complete mess. You know, it, it's simply the center holding for the sake of it. And this is kind of the kind of thing, you know, if we're going to talk about 1930s analogies that the extremes feed off mm-hmm. is that they will do anything to stick in power, but without having any principle um, uh, to to execute when they're there. They're, they're holding office, but they're not exercising power. They are, they, are the, they are the old world and they need to be swept away by a new order. And, you know, that's why these neo-Nazis, the alternative for Deutschland, that's why their party's called the alternative. Because, you know, the SPD, the CDU, the FDP, they can all be painted as basically the same people with just minor differences in hue. And as you know, in Germany, we've got, um, you know, a new round of coalition negotiations that Merkel is trying to undertake after the first round collapse. So a Dutch situation uh, developing there, too, um, which leaves us with Macron. I mean, I'm not even going to mention my own country because it's just not necessary. Um, but le- which leaves us really with Macron, um, whose, you know, opinion poll ratings are just dropping through the floor. You know, he, he, his, his um, optimistic tiara is very much um, a, a thorny crowd of en- entropy pretty quickly. And his great hope, his great gamble is to have a German partner in power who together with him can reform the sadomonetaristic rules of the Eurozone and make it a, a more reflationary, employment-friendly um, club, the Eurozone club. And that prospect diminishes by the day. Merkel is is not quite a dead woman walking, but the beginning of the end of, of, of Merkel and her, her, her era is now within sight. So Macron, you know, doesn't even have the promise he had a month ago. As I said, I'm not going to mention my own country, although, I, although why not? Um, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's in such a comical um, situation. Um, that that were it not tragic, we'd all be laughing our heads off. But it is a very tragic thing that's happening in Britain, um, the country that you know I, I think embodied at least on that side of the Atlantic pragmatism, uh, common sense, um, and the sort of uh, the ability to fashion solutions, however messy, is becoming something quite opposite to to anything that I thought was sort of bred into British political history. And the consequences are going to last a generation, if not longer. And, and it's, it, it, they are greater than everything I've been talking about um, in, in France and, and the Netherlands and Germany. This is permanent, long-term damage 
to all of our futures um, um, in Britain. And and that may be the worst example of them or worse even than what is, what is happening in Trump's America. Well, let me go back to Trump's America then and ask a question to Rosa. One of the things that the United States has sort of depended on over the course of, of, its, of its history is respect for the rule of law. But the president of the United States has taken a, a kind of a bold stance on this, which is laws don't matter unless they're enforced. And I can do whatever, you know, as president, I can do whatever I want in terms of emoluments, clause of the Constitution. If nobody enforces it, it's not a real thing. I can appoint people to jobs, you know, or I can interpret the law with regard to the consumer uh, protection agency, you know, financial protection agency, how I wish to, and 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 let you know, let's fight it out in the courts. And this is kind of how he's, he ran his company, which is I will break the law, uh, or I will s- sail close to the wind with regard to the mm-hmm. law until somebody reins me back in. And because of the Republican Congress, there's nobody inclined to rein him back in. Do, do do you as a lawyer, you know, as a as a teacher of the law, see, you know, worry that this can have a corrosive effect, or do you think there's going to be a big snapback on that front? Well, I I do think that the betting on whether Trump ends up being indicted uh, is, I you know, at this point, I would put good money on Trump ends up indicted. Uh, that doesn't mean he ever goes on trial. It doesn't mean he ever serves a, a millisecond of jail time. I think he, I think he either gets pardoned or he pardons himself, or you know he's 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 impeached or resigned, and and there's some sort of political settlement that does not result in him being in the dock. But but I think at this point, at this point, the indications between Mueller's investigation. Uh, between ongoing investigations of Trump and Trump family activities uh, by uh, in in New York, for instance, um, I I think he is going to face charges um, at some point, and I think he is going to be legally and politically disgraced um, ultimately. Um, that doesn't mean that you know I th- I think I think you're right that sort of in the meantime. Uh, in the meantime, the the corrosive effect of having a government that has indeed become such a kleptocracy um, is really devastating, and and the 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 long term the long term implica- impact of that will go beyond Trump himself and go beyond Trump's fate. And it it does highlight something that that we've talked about before, which is that the rule of law in in many ways, is a matter of culture as much as a matter of institutions. Um, the institutions are really important. I don't mean to suggest that they're not. And I, I talked earlier about my fears for the institution of the judiciary, for instance, um, uh, and its independence and and the quality of the uh, those on the federal bench. But but it's also a matter of culture. And I think that you know we one of the things that that is so shocking about Trump and his circle. To both political parties is that it is it is destroying whatever remained, and there was not that much, but there was some sort of bipartisan commitment to some degree of self restraint, some degree of you know, yeah, you may be in this ultimately so that you can enrich yourself when you get out of Congress. You go to a K Street lobbying firm and you make money off your contacts and so on. But you pretend that that's not what you're doing. You know, that there was sort of a bipartisan commitment to let's at least pretend that this isn't all about personal enrichment and getting away with as much as you can. And and the the sort of the 
Trump family circus in town doesn't even pretend anymore. You know, and the, the example that that sets is it's just it's shocking. Uh, it's, it's hard to even know how to respond to it because it is so shocking. You know, and again, I, I think the only good thing is is – you know, if we get through this, maybe it sparks a real reaction that is not just seized upon and taken advantage of by extremist parties of the far right, but that also serves to revivify, you know, a a, a progressive form of populism that says that's not what we need in this country. We do not need a group of kleptocrats out to enrich themselves uh, and to skirt as close to the law as they possibly can. So who knows? You know, I I, I don't I don't assume that this ends badly for everybody. I. I I think odds are higher that it ends badly than that it ends well, but there is a there is a slender possibility that it ends up sparking a a revivified form of progressive populism that is rule of law oriented rather than just a further decline into uh, you know Nero Neroesque fiddling and and burning. I hope. I hope okay, that's... so Rosa really is wearing the tiara of optimism. Well, it's sort of a shrinking tiara with kind of grubby rhinestones that are falling off. <laughs> like one of those little town uh, clown party hats. <laughs> yeah. The, the tiny little hats that go on the side of the head and are <laughs> everybody. Um, yeah, well, it's possible. But, you know, Corey, in the past couple of episodes, we've been talking about essentially – a void that's being created by the reduction of the United States government into an inert, uh, inward-looking, infighting, dysfunctional entity led by a man who doesn't want to engage in the world. But life goes on. The economy of the world is growing, and uh, the rich are certainly getting richer. And if these tax bills ultimately make their way through. The rich in the United States are going to get richer and big companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger everywhere in the world um, and having more and more reach everywhere in the world. And it raises a question, which is, is one of the things that we're seeing the government receding and that other organizations are stepping up and saying, no, we'll take care of it. Let us guide you on this. Let us play the role. And, you know, Goldman Sachs and the financial community saying, let us set up certain kinds of parameters and, and let us be the diplomats and let's negotiate uh, what we need to see here. And and uh, Facebook and Google and others saying, you know, we'll be the diplomats. We'll go out there and we'll set global standards and we'll spend whatever the money we need to. And are we seeing a kind of, I mean, this has been around for a while. The question is, in the current moment, is the relative influence of these big corporations as the drivers of global policy changing? That's a wonderful question, David. So about 10 years ago, a University of Texas and Columbia law professor, Philip Bobbitt, wrote a book called Shield of Achilles that argued that the the nation state as we've known it was giving way to what uh, was giving way. And I thought I saw a fair amount of corroborating evidence, right? If you look at the global ban on landmines uh, that picked up so much momentum, that wasn't something driven by governments, that was driven by private citizens. Um, and, I, and, and so you get momentum for replacements for government. But the problem with that, both in theory and in practice, 
is that only states are empowered by their only in free societies, states are empowered by their citizens to make trade-offs between competing goods, right? Between tax rates, uh, deficits, and social services and defense. Um, and nothing that is not that doesn't have the aggregating powers of the state is properly positioned to address those trade-offs on behalf of the society, nor are they, nor is there the accountability loop that elections and governance provides. So I, I do think we are seeing more and more of that, and we are certainly seeing it with the Elmore Leonard-style grifters in the Trump White House and, and, and in his, some of his senior appointments. I'm thinking of the picture of the Treasury Secretary and his wife at the moment. Oh. <laughs> uh, but but we're also seeing it with with companies, businesses having outsized influence in the shaping of legislation in a way that is not transparent to the American public. And we we also see it in the way that um, social media is operating outside of the regulatory framework of the Federal Elections Commission, but having enormous influence on our politics. I, I really hope Robes is right, and that what we are headed towards is a sort of 1890s um, controlling the power of big business and outside forces over governance. So, Ed, first of all, I have two questions for you, but let me begin. Corey makes a good point bringing up the Philip Bobbitt book. Can you think of any other big books that were written a few years ago about the rise of corporate versus governments? Um, uh, there was a very good book by um, Raghuram Rajan, the, the um, from Chicago University, and Luigi Zingales, both from Chicago. Rajan went on to become the governor of the Central Bank of India. Um, and uh, Luigi Zingales is still there, called um, Capitalists Against Capitalism. Um, and they made the point that basically pro-business parties nowadays are not pro-capitalism at all. They're pro-capitalists, and that the two are completely different things. Um, and that that's the kind of corrosion we're seeing in terms of the lobbying power and influence over legislation in Washington, but also in other Western um, capitals. It wasn't a bestseller, but it was a diagnost diagnostically very brilliant book. And I think it's, I, I was almost certain you were going to bring up Power Inc. Oh, well, of course. I'm sorry. Power Inc. is um, by you, another brilliant book. But you, you said, yeah. can you think of any books? <laughs> can, you, can you think of any books? Which plural? would make a good Christmas present, or Hanukkah present, or New Year's Eve present, or really or, Ramadan, or or, present, or, or, yeah, or kind or of any stop, present? Or if you have a table, and a legacy, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a weapon. Um, a no, weapon. no, I was actually going to bring up Power Inc. Um, yeah, sure. uh, and. Sure. <laughs> let's let's just let's just leave that aside a second, and I will um, not mention your most recent book. <laughs> uh, but but, you, but I will mention this really good article that you did about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, and about the trouble some of these giant organizations are having adapting to playing a political role, and um, the you know I mean Facebook is seeking to be the largest community on the planet Earth. 
bigger in its intentions in any way than the two biggest countries on earth added up. And, and it clearly has to play some kind of political role, but it is fumbling left and right on that. You wrote brilliantly on it, and I just thought you might want to talk about that. Uh, so I am, um, uh, uh, you know, I think Zuckerberg is an extraordinary emblematic figure of our, of our times, because on the one hand, he, uh, he heads this enormous um, platform, Facebook, you know, with, as you say, you know, like close to 2 billion users with aspirations to be basically the global platform to recreate the communities that we're all losing, that we can all do this online. The extraordinary sort of breadth and scale of ambition from a, you know, a 30-something-year-old uh, uh, that, you know, is very befitting of, of the times and the West Coast nowadays. Uh, so there's that on the one hand. Uh, the, on the other, there is this, you know, if you'll permit me to be a little bit um, rude, there's this guy suffering from acute autism who doesn't understand other human beings. And it's, you know, made apparent every time there is an unscripted interaction with them. Uh, most recently on this um, tour of, uh, you know, this national conversation he's been trying to have with America. And I think what was a sort of stillborn uh, attempt to feel out the ground for a presidential or at least some kind of political um, uh, launch. Um, and the irony of this, this at least politically autistic guy owning um, and running the largest social media platform in the world is, is really quite extraordinary. And I think, uh, you know, as I say, emblematic of, of, of where we are. And another piece of that uh, is that Facebook, you know, uh, claims to stand for progressive values. Um, and for inclusion and, and conversation and connect, connectedness and so forth. Um, but it also represents extraordinary inequality of wealth that we have um, in today's world. And, and extraordinary few jobs that our great sort of brand name success stories are creating. Uh, and um, I don't think Zuckerberg's aware of that. Well, let me add another layer to that just to be provocative. I mean, Corey, Corey said a few minutes ago that, uh, you know, only the state can, can not these private organizations can sort of aggregate preferences uh, in order to truly represent a, a nation's interests when it comes to foreign policy or, or anything else for that matter. Of course, if I were Mark Zuckerberg, I would say, ho, 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 you know, that's that's so 20th century of you to think that only the state can successfully aggregate preferences. The state, it turns out, is terrible at aggregating preferences. Um, uh, voting is a terrible method to aggregate preferences. Uh, as we know, a, a embarrassingly low percentage of Americans uh, actually bother to go to the polls, even in presidential election years. Uh, and we have so badly screwed up our, our voting systems and electoral districts that there is ample reason to doubt that our system of represent, representative government uh, is, is, is in fact capable of representing people's desires, will, wishes, preferences, etc. But but here I, Mark Zuckerberg, I'm here to tell you I know what people's preferences really are and I know it at a level of much greater granularity and much greater authenticity because people, well, they lie to pollsters. They don't bother to vote. Uh, even if they do vote, it, it may not turn out in a, in a way that reflects their preferences. But, but 
Facebook knows everything. I know everything about you. I know all of your, your, your secret preferences. And if you are looking for an entity or an individual, you, you, emotional intelligence is overrated. Algorithms are underrated. You know, I can be as autistic as I want to be because uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, and if you want to entrust anybody to, to represent the world to itself, uh, surely it should be Facebook. It's sort of Power Inc. combined combined with Superclass. Good point. I realize it's completely <laughs> Orwellian. <laughs> surely it should be the people who are becoming billionaires with zero right. accountability and and yet i also think you know we we ignore it at our peril right that that the people you know revealed preference um people it turns out don't really care that much who's in the white house if they actually care they would show up and vote but they do care very much about certain things as indicated as what they like by what they like on facebook and how much time they spend on it and what they click on and so on um, and and i think you know i think we have to actually grapple with that right it's a problem it's a, it's a it's a it's a threat and a dilemma for democracy, but I think we, we can't ignore it. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting moment. And I was thinking um, that as you describe the way Facebook has enabled communication, it sounds a little bit like the kind of communication that is sometimes attributed to people who are on the autism spectrum. In other words, you don't have to read eye contact. You don't have to look at You just have to memorize person. a bunch of emojis. You don't you no, you it's 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 reduces it to a very kind of binary algorithm uh, uh, intellectual level, which some people who are on that spectrum are very good at. And it takes away all the things that they're not good at, being close to people, uh, judging their emotions, judging their body language, judge, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's just kind of an interesting manifestation that somebody who is kind of maladaptive becomes really good at creating a way for people to interact that he might be comfortable with, but that it doesn't actually reflect the way people really interact with each other. And that has drawn complete <laughs> well, silence. Because it turns yeah. out that is how people interact with each other now. Yeah, you, you're trying to interact with us, David. And, yeah. we, and, and if you would just send us, uh, you know, a tweet, we could interact with him more successfully. Yeah, that was way too human. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> that, that so, was... so sorry, you know, in New Jersey, we're raised to communicate with people in a diner over a bagel. <laughs> and and anything that doesn't involve a diner and a bagel, I'm really not extremely effective at. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's just me. Uh, in any event. Uh, I think this is quite interesting. There's a shift going on, and uh, some of it is a short-term shift as the U.S. government dysfunct is dysfunctional and, and uh, pursues certain paths. Some of these are longer-term shifts. Um, the nature of the balance of power in the world is certainly shifting. We talk about this in some form or another in every single episode. But this is... Um, uh, a ripe moment and and we could head off and you know if they pass a tax bill and all of a sudden it drives inequality much more greatly and of course this tax bill has got a hidden component to it right if they pass the tax bill they blow up the budget 
And then they're going to have to cut the deficit. And the way they're going to have to cut the deficit is entitlements, because that's really the only way to get at it. So it's a kind of one-two punch against the middle and the, the uh, uh, more uh, lower middle classes in the United States, because uh, it's going to get them now, and then it's going to get them again on that thing. Inequality will grow. The rich will benefit. And they'll operate on a different plane with a different kind of politics. And the rest will be you know, in Facebook, liking things, I guess. Um, well, that's that's a kind of disturbing place to leave us all, but that's where we are. For Corey Shockey, of course, it's better. She's in Rome. That's a good thing. Um, for for at least and, and, and Rosa, they're in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, um, which is a lovely place, by the way, and hopefully many of you will get to see it. Uh, we, we did have, by the way, a number of people who... You know, all, you know, in fact, one, I, I think Rose immediately signed up, but identified a n- nuclear missile silo in Kansas that you was being b- rented out as an Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were thinking, well, maybe maybe we could do a, a broadcast from there if they have Internet or we could throw a party for our listeners. You know, we will be, by the way, in January announcing a series of deep state radio live engagements in different destinations so that you can come and be entertained by your favorite deep state radio live characters and you know possibly we'll have small action figures of rosa and Corey and ed and <laughs> david sanger <laughs> oh, excellent i like the action figure ideas yeah no i think and there's spirit animals it'll be fantastic Need us the cover of my book please yeah, no, no, I think it's really good. In fact, I have this whole image of the, you know, remember when you were a kid and you get these farms, you know, you get a barn and then inside there were all these little animals and you could lay out little fences and play with the little animals and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe we could make a silo and then put inside of it little <laughs> deep state radio characters. <laughs> <laughs> People could play with them, and there'd be Rosa Brooks's dog, and Corey Shockey's horse, and Ed Luce's bear, and, <laughs> and then the real ones. I don't know. There's some promise. <laughs> well, deep state radio nerds, let's let's see your drawings. Let's let's see your best suggestions on that front, uh, and please join us again next week uh, when we will have another enthralling episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Corey, Rosa, and Ed. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.